Please stand for the reading of God's word. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Same passage as last week, starting at verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God, and I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. We are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us, so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Amen. Amen. You guys may be seated. It's good to see everybody today. And good to be back in the Word of God with you today. So important to be in the Word. I hope that you're in the Word all the week long. So, so much nourishment for our soul in Scripture. Um, well, uh, we've, we've read the text, uh, so why don't you pray one more time with me, and uh, we will begin, okay? Let's pray over the Word today. Uh, dear Lord, we thank you so much for your Word, God. Lord, far too often, Lord, we take your word far too lightly. And God, I pray today that you would help us to see your word for what it is, Lord, our only hope in this fight of faith. Lord, because it's only by your word that you will grow our faith. It's only by your word that you will instruct our faith and sanctify our faith. And so we pray, dear God, help us to rightly esteem your words. Help us to give us the heart of the psalmist who declared that your word was more precious to him than much treasure, much gold. Lord, more than any bars of gold or silver, Lord, your word is precious to us. Help us to treasure it in our hearts. I just pray today, Lord, please instruct us on the nature of Christian love. As we look at this amazing passage of Scripture, Lord, remind us of your love for us. Remind us that every single believer in this place and all over the world is greatly beloved of God. And Lord, help us and forbid that we would ever question your love. The world is filled with unbelief concerning your love. The world is filled with doubt concerning your love. Your world wonders how there can be a loving God with all the types of things that are in the world, but we know and we trust that your love in, is unfailing, that your love is a covenant love, that your love was displayed supremely through Jesus Christ so that we never have to doubt your love again. Lord, thank you so much for your love. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, this passage does have everything to do uh, with Christian love, and so I've entitled it The Anatomy of Christian Love. And to see how that the love of God, the love of Christ specifically in this passage, was fuel for ministry, fuel for the Christian life, and fuel for the Apostle Paul to live a holy, selfless life. That's what this whole passage 
is about. Now, so I want to begin by pointing out to you that the fountain of Christian love is Christ. The very foundation of Christian love is Jesus Christ himself. He is the very fountain of it. And you know what, brothers and sisters, you and I can never think too often, we can never think too deeply about the love of Christ. We can never stop to contemplate the love of Christ too much in our lives. It is a deep means of grace for us to think on the love of Christ. It will change your life, I promise you, if you focus on it, if you dwell on it, if it becomes more than just a doctrine for you, but if it becomes a truth that affects your very soul, your very heart and mind, it will affect your life. And we see how that does, how that happens right here in the, in the words of the Apostle Paul, how it affected him. Let's read verses 14 through 15 again. Really, that's our focus. Remember the first part of this section we handled last week going up to verse 13. But then he launches into a new thought in verse 14. He says, For the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, so that they who live may no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. And so you see right there this awesome awesome foundation of all Christian love, namely being the love of Christ before. Now, Paul has already mentioned this. Paul has already shown how he was impacted by the love and the mercy and the grace of God in Christ. You remember that was the whole catalyst for this whole passage, this whole launching pad into the defense of his ministry. He says in verse or chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, he says, therefore, we have this ministry, he says, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, he says, we do not lose heart. It was in light of the, of the fact that he was mercied by God, that he was an object of the mercy of God, that he was able to encourage himself in the Lord. So that he never lost sight of that. I love that. And, you know, I feel sorry. And I take this as a warning to me of any minister that would ever lose sight of the love of God, ever lose sight and, and, and lose sight of the, of the love especially that was lavished upon him at conversion. Many commentators conclude that what, that what Paul is doing here is he's engaging in a, a form of soliloquy where he's thinking back, thinking out loud, or thinking in his mind, if you would, back to his Damascus Road experience. Upon that fateful day, when God saw fit to reveal His Son in Him. And He never got over that gracious moment. Have you gotten over that gracious moment? Dear friends, have you gotten over the gracious moment where God lavished you with His grace and His mercy, where He mercied you, where He took you in the, in the, in the darkness of your own sin, and He pulled you up by His glorious grace. And He cleansed you, washed you, renewed you, gave you the very righteousness of His Son. Paul never got over that. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 7, he says, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace 
which was given to me according to the working of His power. Why do we reflect on the grace of God that was given to us upon conversion? Is because it is an evidence of the power of God. Dear brethren, do we think back on that faithful moment? Or maybe you don't have a Damascus Road experience. Maybe you don't have a, a, a period in time where you can say, at that very moment, uh, everything changed in my life. But you know what? Can you reflect right now where you're at? Right now, can you think upon the fact that you're converted? That you're saved? That you have faith in Jesus Christ? That you've been giving eternal, eternal life? My wife and I have very different testimonies. I had such a Damascus Road experience. My life changed in an instant, in one moment in time. I can remember the very moment that it happened. There I was, kneeling beside my bed, covered in a puddle of my tears as I was repenting and, 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 and as was, I was giving my life over to Christ. And it was a day and night conversion. I walked out of that room a changed man, never to be the same again. My wife doesn't have the same type of testimony. She could, she could talk about having faith as a young girl. She could, have, she could talk about having more faith as a teenager. But one thing she knows for certain is that she has faith today, is that she is trusting in Christ right now. And so that for her and for me and for all of us, no matter where we lie in our experience, if we have present faith in Christ now, we have been lavished we have been mercied by God. We have been granted mercy, just like the Apostle Paul says. And, and what type of reflection should we have? It should look something like this. Every person here, if you rightly understand salvation, if you rightly understand your sin, and you rightly understand the greatness of the cross, your reflection should sound something like this. To me, the very least of all the saints... Grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. That's what it sounds like. It means that you are aware of your sin and your misery without God. That you were truly in a miserable condition without God. That you were in the worst possible condition of your, that your soul could ever be in apart from Christ. And that God delivered you, He freed you, and He gave you such an experience of His grace and of His love and of His mercy that you could not but help to preach it to others. That's the phenomenon. That's the dynamic. That's the way that it works. The Apostle Paul is not preaching something he's not experienced. The Apostle, the Apostle Paul is not preaching something that he is not familiar with. When he talks about the greatness, the riches of Christ... He knows of that wealth. He's partaken of Christ Himself. And woe to any preacher that has not tasted and seen that the Lord is good and then tries to tell people how good God is. It doesn't work. It is very difficult to preach an awe-satisfying Christ if you are not satisfied in Him yourself. It is very difficult to preach about the love of God if you yourself have not allowed yourself to become intoxicated with the love of Christ. It's very difficult to preach to others that which is lacking in your own life. This is why the Puritans were very big on what they called experimental preaching. Experiment and experience were essentially synonymous. 
In other words, they were saying, we preach what we experienced ourselves. It is what we experience in our daily lives. And that's what the Apostle Paul is doing here. He is preaching about the love that has impacted his life. He's not talking about theory. He's not talking about an idea. He's not just talking about a philosophy. He's not talking about a program, a mechanism, how to, how to influence people. And how does the, how does the book go? Uh, how to make friends and influence people or something like that. That's not what Paul's looking at. Paul was so radically impacted. He was so transformed. He was so converted that he was was literally leading people into the very love that shaped his life. And he saw himself, he saw himself in desperate need of the love of God. He knew that the love of God was the only way that he could ever preach to others It was only by the love of God that would control him. It would compel him, the word is, to control or to compel. It literally means that it was pressing in upon him. It was pressing in upon him. And you know what? I want to just bring in this this word of, of, of wisdom. That the enemy of God's zeal producing love is doubt and unbelief. So that if we are tempted to doubt the love of God, it will so quickly erode the power of the love of God in our lives. And we should attack this doubt with all vehemence and all force. And I got that word from Jonathan Edwards. I didn't, I, I, I've read the resolutions of Jonathan Edwards uh, several times, but uh, I don't remember reading this one. Can I read it to you? This is Jonathan Edwards' 25th resolution regarding the love of God. This is how he treasured it. Jonathan Edwards saw himself as the enemy of anything that would undermine the love of God in his life. He said, resolved to examine carefully and constantly what that one thing in me is which causes me in the least bit to doubt the love of God and to direct all of my forces against it. You see, what he's saying there is that he has understood the supreme value of knowing and treasuring the love of God so that at any time, if you are tempted to think, does God really love me? After all, look at my trials. After all, look at my suffering. After all, look at my situation at work, in my home, in my marriage. Look at my sanctification. I haven't grown the way I should grow. Does God really love me? Look at the things that happened to me this year or in my past. And I would say that you must avow yourself the enemy of such demonic lies. You must become the enemy so that you direct all of your forces against anything that would contemplate doubting the love of God in your life. Because to doubt the love of God, brothers and sisters, is to doubt the cross of Jesus Christ. It is to doubt the very pinnacle of God's redemptive work. It's not just you're doubting an emotion. I don't know if God loves me. I don't feel anything. It's way bigger than that. When you doubt the love of God, what you're saying is, I doubt whether or not God was supremely revealed through Jesus Christ at the cross. 
that greatest of all redemptive works that has ever, ever taken place. You see, this is why we must treasure. We must be controlled by the love of God. And so what Paul goes on to do here is he gives us an exploration. How do you contemplate the love of God? Let me just tell you, the way that you do it is you begin to analyze it, ponder it deeply, get into the facts and into the facets of God's love. That's exactly what Paul does here. He gets into the facts and the facets of the love of God as he contemplates the love of God. It's not an emotion he's waiting around to happen. It's something that he pursues actively, the love of God. This is the love of God that Christ died. Now, in order for that to have continual relevance in our lives, we must explore it and all of its many implications for our lives. Let me give you the first facet. Number one, he says that the love of God is universal. The universal love of Christ, specifically. Look at what he says. He says, he says the love of Christ controls us, right? For the love of Christ controls us. And then he makes this statement, having concluded this, and that's why I'm making such a big deal out of exploring the love of God, pondering, thinking about it, uh, uh, diving into its many implications, right? Worshiping God with your mind about the love of God. That's what it is. It's because when he says, having concluded this, he uses a word that means he's made a critical assessment. Ask yourself that question. Have you made a critical assessment of the love of Christ in your life? Have you pondered deeply? Have you made a rational, theological, exegetical uh, judgment about how the love of Christ works in your life? If you haven't, you're missing out on the Christian life. If you haven't, you're missing out on all of the beautiful facets of the cross. The cross is a prism cross. The cross has many sides and colors and shapes and it has many aspects and there are so many different facets to it that we would be impoverished to let it sit by unattended to. We have to attend to the cross. And look how he does this. First, he begins by setting out the, the, the sort of the overarching statement of the universal scope of the cross. He says that one died for all. That's Christ. Therefore, all died. Now, let me just say that I don't think that this passage right off the bat is not talking about universalism. So we need to guard against this notion that what this passage and other passages like it is speaking about the fact that everyone will be saved or, or is going to be saved in the end, like the universalists teach. No, but I think that we have to trace very carefully the, the persons that are in, in view here. So that when he says that one died for all, it is the same that that, that he mentions later when he says, therefore, all died. And if you trace the argument carefully, then he'll go on to say that all, in verse uh, 15, he'll go on to say that all there are they who live. 
and then repeats the substitutionary nature of the cross by saying that it is for them or on their behalf that he died. And so the people in view here is not everyone without exception whatsoever. But I would say it's a reference to God's people, all of God's people. We could say technically all of God's elect. You know what's amazing to me is that as I was studying this, uh, this passage, it amazed me how many commentators were afraid to talk about election. None of them, by and large, were even willing to touch election in this passage. Now, understandably, the passage itself does not talk about that. But when you are talking about something so theologically deep and profound as the atoning work of Christ, you cannot do that in a vacuum. You have to do that in light of the whole canon of Scripture. You have to do that in light of the whole counsel of God. Okay? We know that. And you'll get in hermeneutical problems if you don't do it that way. It says in Timothy, women are saved by childbearing. Are women saved because they had babies? You have, to do exege- you have to expound on what he means there. You have to enlarge the meaning of that and by letting Scripture inform it. It's called the analogy of the faith. Scripture interpreting Scripture. And so there's, according to this passage, therefore, those that are in view are those for whom Christ substituted himself. And let me tell you something, that the substitution took place in such a way that it accomplished redemption. You know, this is the problem with with many uh, Bible teachers today when they talk about the atonement. They think the atonement only made men savable, that it made salvation potential, that it might happen now that the work has been done, but now man has been put in a position where he has to activate the atonement for himself, so to speak. But that is not at all what the Bible teaches in terms of the atoning work of Christ. His blood was shed for a specific people for a specific reason, and it has a specific design. It is not so that men become savable. It's so that he actually saves men. This is what, uh, this is what Matthew 1.21 says, that he came to save his people his people. He didn't come to make his people savable. He came to actually save them. And the same type of idea, therefore, is presented to us in verse 19. Look at verse 19 in this very chapter. The same sort of theology, the universal scope, but then the particularity of it comes next. He says, God was was in Christ reconciling the world to himself not counting their, transpa- their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Same phenomenon. We go from the universal to the particular, just like in this passage. The all that he died for, the all that died, who is it? Those who come to life. That is who he died or he died on their behalf. In the same way, Christ was reconciling the world. But obviously, the whole world is not saved. But this passage just said that God reconciled the world. So what gives? 
I think it boils down to the definition of words like all, words like every, words like world. And if we don't have a proper theology of these things, we can make a mess of Scripture. And that's why some people end in the heresy of universalism. Well, it says all. Oh, I had somebody recently arguing this vehemently to me. It says all. Oh, it says world right there. That's not all it says. In Revelation chapter 5, I think we have one of the most comprehensive um, uh, evidences that it can't possibly mean the whole world, no exceptions whatsoever, every man, woman, and child that has ever lived, ever will live. It is not an exhaustive category. Listen to Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. You know that the word world is used by the Apostle John more than any other author in relationship to passages like these that talk about salvation. And he clarifies the, the, the meaning of all of this when you get to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5, verse 19. There's two reasons why I like this. Number one, because he clarifies his theology. Number two, because this is uh, at the end of time. Uh, we know how the story ends, Right? We know how uh, redemption will be finished. We know how it all will work out in the end. And this is what he says, Worthy are you, Revelation 5, 9, to take the book and break its seals, for you were slain. There's the language of atonement. And you purchased for God, there's the language of redemption, to purchase. He says, with your blood, men, and this is the critical, critical point, from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Important to point out there that there is one preposition. The preposition is the word from, ek, in the Greek, and it modifies every noun that comes after it. That's the construction here. He says, you, you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. So what is that telling us? That he is taking out of every tribe, out of every nation, out of every people, a people for his own possession. It's sort of a similar thing that you find in Romans chapter 5, verse 18, where he says, so then as through one transgression there resulted condemnation for all, all men, even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification and life to all men. Again, is this passage teaching universalism or is it teaching something else? Well, verse 17 says that the all men there are those who have faith or who have trusted in Christ. And so once again, when this, the authors of Scripture move from the universal to the particular, they define exactly what they are talking about about. Paul is not talking about universalism, therefore. Christ dying on behalf of His people is, is in parallel to Adam representing all of His people, we could say. That's what's being talked about there in Romans chapter 5, verse 18. Adam represented all of his posterity, and Jesus represents all of his posterity. Adam represents his race, and Christ represents His race. And who is His race? His race is the elect of God. His race is, according to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 to 4, those who have been chosen before the foundation of the world and predestined to be adopted. That is Christ's race. That He is taking out of Jew, both Jew and Gentile, a people for His own possession. 
that are comprised of every tongue, people, nation, tribe of the world. That's amazing. Revelation says it's an innumerable number, an innumerable number of those who will be redeemed. Our God is a logical God, and there is a logical order to salvation. It begins with election and predestination. It goes all the way down to glorification, to glorification. Now, let me just give you now, um, really, in verse 15, you see there, He gives us sort of the very heart of what He wants to talk about. He wants to talk about not just the the, the theological reality, okay, of the atonement, but he wants to talk about the sanctify or the love of Christ, excuse me, but the sanctifying love of Christ. So there, there is the universal scope or the universal facet of Christ's love. He dies for all of his people, no exceptions. That you could say no exceptions. And also he dies for them in order to sanctify them Look at verse 15, and he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him. You see that? That is the purpose. That is why Christ died. He died in order to produce selfless slaves. That's right who are willfully enslaved to the master who died to purchase them. Not an ordinary master. No ordinary master dies for his slaves in order to free them. But that's what Christ did. So these are not ordinary slaves who willfully surrender themselves to their master who died in their place. It's not an ordinary master and and there are not ordinary slaves. But you see here, the absolute efficacy, once again, the absolute efficacy of Christ's death. He died for all, which again, he makes it more specific, so that they who live, you see that? So consequently, it is these who experience Christ's sanctifying love. The life that Paul is referring to here refers, therefore, to our union, not only with the death of Christ, but with the life or the resurrection of Christ. Paul has already spoken about this in chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 14, he says, Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise, will raise us also with Jesus. So we are united to Christ not only in his death, but also in his resurrection, in his life, in his life. And how do you know if you have been raised with Jesus The answer lies, my friends, in a transformed life. How do you know that you're in Christ? This is so critical. Just this week, we got another reminder. My wife, she got a phone call saying that her grandmother had passed away this week. Please pray for her and pray for the family. But it was just another reminder of of, of just how serious salvation is and how serious eternal life is and how serious being right with God is. Dear friends, if you're not right with God today, please make it your aim. Have no other agenda today. There's no game that you need to watch. There's no mall that you need to go to. There's no restaurant that you need to eat at. The very first priority of your life is to know, are you in Christ? Do you have everlasting life? Are you on your way to heaven? That's what my wife's aunt said. Please pray for Mimo that she went to heaven. You see, death has a 
a certain finality about it, a certain sobriety about it, and it is so sober. And there's nothing more important than to know, therefore, that you, are be- that you are in union with Christ, not just with His death, but with His life. And how do you know if you're in union with Christ's life? Is there a transformation in your life? Is your life transformed? Are you now a selfless person? Do you now have a total different orientation of life? Are you now completely different than where you were? Now, let me qualify that. We're never going to be perfect, right? We're never going to be perfect. It doesn't mean we're going to be sinlessly perfected, exactly like we heard in Sunday school. We'll never be perfected in that sense. But there will be a change. There will be a transformation. 2 Corinthians 3.18, that's exactly what that's talking about. As we are being transformed with, from one degree of glory to the next degree of glory by the power of the Holy Spirit, you know that the life of Christ resides in you. And you know what's amazing? is once you know that you're in union with Christ, you want to serve Christ. But you're not serving Christ to pay Him back. You're not serving Christ out of a, what John Piper calls the debtor's ethic. You're trying to pay God back for His immense and immeasurable and infinite grace. You can never pay God back. Listen, you cannot do God any favors. All that all of your serving and all of your worship and all of your works and everything that you do and all of your labor, all that it is, is worship, praise. You are not trying to pay God back so that God will be reciprocated somehow. Okay, God, you did your part, now let me do my part for you, right? Isn't that the temptation in our lives almost in every area? You came to my house and cooked me, or excuse me, you know, uh, we, you had me over at your house, you cooked me dinner, you did, now I have to do it for you because, of course, you know, thank you for the favor, but I want to pay you back. You see, we are so enslaved to that type of thinking, this idea that we have to pay back favor. Favor is favor. It is unearned, and you can never pay it back. That's what Romans chapter 4 says. Now to the one who works, his wages is not credited as favor, but as what is due. But the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. So those who have been united to Christ's death and his resurrection are motivated to live selfless lives in the service of Christ, not because They think they will earn more of God's grace or His favor, but simply because of the praise-inspiring reality that Christ died and rose again on their behalf. That's why. This is the sanctifying power of the cross. It is only in the cross, therefore, that the apostle chose to boast in regard to his sanctification. The cross does not produce legalism. The cross does not produce antinomianism. The cross produces absolute selfless sacrifice for the glory and the worship of God. Maybe one verse, really important verse, Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. Maybe you can turn there, Galatians 6, 14. It was the cross that leads to such a glorious union with Christ that our Christless selfish ambition has been annihilated. It has been destroyed. And we are in the continual process of reckoning it to be so. Are you following me? This is so important. 
Look at what the cross ought to do. Galatians 6.14, But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which this is what we want to see in Christian living. Through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. That's what we want in the Christian life. Dead to the world. The world no longer has power over you. The world no longer can seduce you with all of its flesh-appeasing appetites, tantalization, all of its seductive temptations. And it's the cross that, cro- that, that causes this dual death. This dual death. The world crucified, put to death, and me dead to the world. You see that? Oh, that's, what, that's all we need in the Christian life is to be dead to the world and have the world be dead to us so that we could be alive to God so that we can serve the living God. He says, For neither is circumcision anything, so much for legalism, or uncircumcision, but a new creation. And those who walk by this rule, this principle, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. When you look at Paul's selfless devotion to Christ, it shows up supremely in two ways in this passage. It shows up through evangelism, and it shows up by Paul's incessant devotion to the church. You know that because he's already stated that. In verse 13, if we are of a sound mind, it is for you. It is for your upbuilding, in other words. It is for the edification of the church. And you know what? This is why I said The love of Christ is the fountain, the foundation of Christian love because it is the love of Christ that controls us. Not so much our love for others. That wavers. That goes up and down. You know, I'm preaching at UNT in in front of a score of young people. Sometimes my love for them, you know, it wavers, especially, you know, you get a certain character up there. Boy, my love gets tested. But, um, But one thing never wavers, and that is Christ's love for us. That never wavers. That is constant and solid as the pavement. It is solid as a concrete. It will never change. It's more solid than that. It is covenantal love. Therefore, Christ has bound himself to it. And we have the absolute assurance and certainty of his love. And that is what fuels the evangelism for which Paul was so committed. So committed. It is the message of reconciliation. And that's the message that we preach. We preach the message of reconciliation. Paul, having been reconciled, now preaches to others the message of reconciliation. That's the way that he works. It's because of the cross that we don't preach to men legalism. It's because of the cross that we don't preach to men a social gospel, a humanitarian gospel a liberal gospel, a feminist gospel, a a psychology-driven gospel, or a moralistic gospel, moralism. Just say, look, just do these things that are required of you, and you are in good standing. No. Christ has done everything on your behalf, and that is the only reason you can have any standing before God. It's a world of difference. 
That's why Paul says, now all these things, 2 Corinthians 5.18, now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. You see what I mean by thinking about the love of God? Look at the prepositions in that verse. Uh, Paul is glorying over prepositions. <laughs> Without these prepositions, we don't got a gospel. He says... He reconciled us to himself, that's one preposition, through Christ, that's another preposition. There's a world of theology there, a world of theology. That's why sometimes I'm tempted, sometimes I'm, I'm obligated to preach one verse. I can't get over it, sorry. So if you come here, oh man, he's preaching one verse again. Sorry, I got caught up, what can I do? But I'll try to preach in context as much as possible. And so he labored to preach the message of reconciliation. It produced evangelism. How about us? How about us? So, well, I'm not the evangelistic type. I don't like passing out tracts. I certainly am never going to open air preach. Okay, but, but, but that doesn't matter. What about evangelism? You still can open your mouth. You can still call your family members, hardest people in the whole world to witness to. You know that. You can still witness to people at work, your friends, your neighbors. You know, my wife makes me do some of the hardest stuff when it comes to evangelism. You know what she makes me do? I'll just lay it all out right here. Every Christmas, she makes me, uh, well, she bakes the cookies. She bakes cookies. And she makes me carry these cookies around our neighborhood to our neighbors and give them cookies and preach the gospel to them. Do you know how terrifying that is for me? I'd much rather preach to 200 college kids than to walk around the neighborhood with cookies in my hand. But you could do that. All of us, can't you bake some cookies? They make it so easy, and I just pump it out of that tube, and then that's it. There's no work involved. I'm waiting for them to come out with microwavable chocolate chip cookies. I mean, how much easier can it get to use a springboard to talk to people about the love of God, the message of reconciliation? The second thing is this. That this love of Christ produced in, in the Apostle Paul such a devotion to the local church. It's, it's so daunting. It's a, whole nother, it's a whole nother sermon. But really, that's what I bring this up here only because in 2 Corinthians, that is really Paul's focus, is the purity of the local church and his commitment to it. He tries to argue his way there to, to try to show them, look, how much he strived for the edification of the church, how much he was devoted to see the, the, the church of God excel, and to what point, to what end did he want to see the church excel until he can boast over her. That's, that's, that's what? Until he can boast, until the obedience was so evident that the only natural outcome, therefore, is praise. Boast. That's a holy boast, a holy praise, a holy glorying, a holy pride over the church. And he does it everywhere. He does it everywhere. And all apostolic boasting, I will remind you, is based on one thing obedience. Obedience. Mark it. Every time you go into these passages, he's always talking about their obedience. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 4, Great is my confidence in you, and great is my boasting on your behalf. That's 2 Corinthians 7, 4. He says, I'm filled with comfort, I'm overflowing with joy and all of our affliction. 
2 Corinthians 8.24, Therefore openly before the churches show them the proof of your love and of our reason for boasting about you. The church is a loving church. It deserves praise. Church is a loving church. It deserves to be commended because there are so many loveless churches that don't love each other, won't lay their lives down for the brethren, won't sacrifice for one another, won't love their fellow man, their neighbor, will not love each other. So many churches just torn apart by bickering and infighting and, 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 and exactly what Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, biting and devouring one another instead of walking in the glorious liberty that is in Christ Jesus. Maybe one more verse to show you on this. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Turn there quickly because I want you to see that this boasting, this joy over the church is sincere and it is rooted in the truth. It is rooted in the truth of their obedience. 2 Corinthians 7.13, he says this, For this reason we have great comfort. We've been comforted, excuse me. And besides our comfort, we rejoiced even much more for the joy of Titus, because his spirit was refreshed by you all. For if in anything I have boasted to him about you, I was not put to shame. But as we spoke all things to you in truth... So that so also our boasting before Titus proved to be in truth. See, it wasn't just, yeah, my, great, my church is a great church. This is a great church. Is it great? Is the gospel there? Are people loving each other? Is the gospel being lived out? Don't just pat yourself on the back when your church is not following the gospel and honoring the Word of God and obeying the Word of God. He says his affections abound all the more toward you as he remembers the obedience of you all. Beautiful, beautiful. How you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice that in everything I have confidence in you. That's what it produces. It produces a desire to edify and purify the church. That's what the love of God produces. And the last thing, it produces this absolute selfless living. This absolute selfless living. Notice what he says again. He says, and he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but here is the true object of our lives. For him who died and rose again on their behalf. That's who we're living for. We're living for Christ. So, not only is it a, oh, what are the points that I, that, I, that I pointed out? I don't want to get it wrong. There is a sanctifying love, a universal. We started with a universal aspect of Christ's love, and then we moved on to the sanctifying aspect of Christ's love. And now, once again, Paul zeroes in on the substitutionary nature of the love of Christ, the substitutionary nature of the love of Christ. It is because of this love death that Jesus died that we live for Him, that our lives are given up as offerings for Him. Now, I want to take you to a host of scriptures, but I want to tell you first that the doctrine of the substitutionary atonement of Christ is a good place for you to start. If you're going to start contemplating the facts and the facets of the love of Christ, start with that. Understand that, that you have a substitute. And what does it mean? What do these prepositions mean on behalf, for them, on their behalf? That, that is the essence of it. That is the crux of the exegesis here. 
that it is because it was on your behalf. It means in your place, in your stead. In other words, he stood there for you. He stood there to absorb the wrath of God in your place. That's what it means, that he died and that he rose again. Two things are there, right? The death represents his sacrifice. And what type of sacrifice was it? It was propitious, meaning it removes the wrath of God. God, think about it, God was so angry at you before you became a Christian. God had nothing but vengeance for you because of his holy nature and his just nature. Because he's a just judge. He's the judge of all the world, the Bible says. And he was angry at your sin. And, the, and because you were a son or daughter of Adam, you were under the headship of Adam and you represented an accursed race. The Bible, Isaiah calls them cursed children. Or Peter, excuse me. First Peter says, accursed children. That's all that God saw. So it, it is propitious. It removes the wrath of God. And it also expiates God's, excuse me, it also expiates our sin. It removes our sin. It takes our sin away. It forgives our sin. Galatians 1.7, He forgave us of our sins so that Jesus Christ becomes the ultimate sacrifice. Jesus Christ becomes the ultimate Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb. Every time the Jews celebrated the Passover, they were talking about the cross. Every time they celebrated the Passover and they took the meal together and gathered around their table, little did they know it was a future memorial of the cross that Christ himself, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, was our Passover. He's our Passover lamb. Therefore, there is no more wrath for us. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9 says, For God has not destined us for wrath. That's what that means. But to obtain salvation through Christ. That is what propitiation is. It also leads to this selfless life. Let's turn one more passage. Galatians chapter 2, because I want this to be, I don't want to pick your favorite verse, but this should be your favorite verse in all the Bible. Galatians chapter 2, verses 19 through 20. It should be like a banner over your life. Verse 19, he says, Galatians 2, 19, he says, For th through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. Exactly what he's teaching here, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It is no longer I who live. But Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. You see the wonder of that? I can't do it any. I, there's not, I, I've, I'm, let's close the sermon. I don't have words for this. This is so great and glorious. This is so life-changing, transforming, that if some young man in this church gets a hold of this, it could just so utterly transform his life that out he goes through those doors into the world and lays his life down for the gospel. Absolute transformation. Absolute confirmation to the, to the mind and the will of God to be in union with Christ, to say, I no longer live. I'm dead. The old me is gone. Whatever I was before, gone, dead, 
in the grave with Christ. And now, the life that I'm living now, if it's any life at all, if it's any life worth living, it's only because it's a life that shows that you are in union with Christ. It's only worth living if you show that in your life, you're living the resurrected life. Life in the newness of the Spirit of God. It's amazing. It's, it's transformation. The gospel will transform us. That's why he died, so that we who live, we're no longer living for ourselves, but we're living for him who died as our substitute, as our propitiation, and he rose again. Do you know what the, the resurrection should signify to you? Yes, that you will be raised with Christ, absolutely. That you will have a future resurrection with Jesus Christ. But more than that, that the life of Christ works in you now. That you, your everyday life is, is, is being, it's being filled with the resurrected power of Christ to live a life of obedience, a life that is glorifying and satisfying and, and, and that is edifying, a life that's glorifying to God that is the only way to live the Christian life, is to identify with Jesus, His death and His resurrection. That's it, right? Another one of those Christian secrets that we're not supposed to have, or, or, or Christian keys, excuse me, those Christian keys to the whole Christian life, right? But that's it. Identify with the death and resurrection of Christ. And every time you're tempted to live for the world, remind yourself that you are identifying with the death of Christ and die to the world. And any time you are tempted to live for lesser things, remember your exaltation. Remember that you are in union with Christ who is what? Risen. The fact that He is risen is more than a miracle. People just want to talk about the resurrection because it proves some apologetical point. My dear friends, the resurrection means the final vindication of Jesus Christ, the ultimate vindication of Christ, that God put his stamp of approval on what Jesus did on the, on the cross on behalf of his people. I know I've gone a little bit over today. I can't help it. I can't help it. I'm so gripped by the gospel. I'm so gripped by these truths because I don't know any other way to live except for living by these principles, by these truths that are right here in the Word of God for us. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I've said all I could say. I've done all I could do. Lord, I, I pray that, uh, Lord, please take Your Word and drive it deep into our hearts. Help us, Lord, to put to death what is earthly in us. This passage, and I, I failed to bring this out like I should have, but this passage has so much to do with our selfishness. We are such selfish people. God, we can, I confess, we're so selfish. We want it our way all the time. Lord, please forgive us. We know what the scriptures say. James chapter 3, verse 16, that where selfish ambition and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing is there. So, Lord, help us not to live for ourselves anymore, but help, help us to live for one solitary purpose, and that is to serve you. That is to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ with our lives that very soon, very soon, Lord, will be over because life is a vapor. 
and it's here today, it's gone tomorrow. Soon this life will be passed, and only that which is done for Christ will last. So, Father, I pray that you awaken us to these eternal realities. Offer your glory. It's in Christ's holy name we pray.